let me ask you just in your professional career, have you seen a gradual change in the in the mental health of of boys and young men? Or was this something that just kind of we kind of woke up to it and went, oh, wait a second, this is really different now. I think there are some generational changes that that primarily have to do with the, you know, the digital age, and then also the explosion of social media, which really took off after 2005. I think that's the date that often people kind of have in mind for that. Welcome to The Neutral Ground. Is there an identity crisis for boys and men today? Questions about what it means to be a man go back thousands of years. Read Plato's Republic and you'll find quite a few notes on what men should and shouldn't do. In recent years, however, these questions have emerged with more force, and our culture with its increased reliance on digitized existences and isolated echo chambers of communication have produced quite a confusing state of existence for boys and men. And not them alone, by the way, this isolated, confusing state of existence appears to extend itself to women as well. But I do believe this aspect of our culture has hit boys and men quite differently than girls and women. It turns out that a cup of confusion, a dash of alienation, and a tablespoon of an increasingly digitized cultural existence are precisely the right ingredients to produce a boy or young man in crisis today. We're going to discuss this topic with Dr. Robert Taminsky. Robert is an adult and child analyst member of the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco and a past president. He teaches in the Institute's analytic training program. He's the author of Male Alienation at the Crossroads of Identity, Culture, and Cyberspace, the book we'll be using as our guide today, and The Psychology of Theft and Loss, Stolen and Fleeced. He's the 2016 winner of the Michael Forden Prize from the Journal of Analytical Psychology. His new book, The Psychological Effects of Immigrating, A Depth Psychology Perspective on Relocating to a New Place, is available now. As always, if you find the conversation interesting, support the show by hitting the subscribe button, the like button, and leaving a thoughtful comment for me and my guest to chew on. We appreciate it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Robert Taminsky. Robert, welcome to The Neutral Ground. We're going to be using your book, Male Alienation at the Crossroads of Identity, Culture, and Cyberspace, to explore some of the ways that boys and men interact with the culture of today and how those interactions can produce some rather detrimental effects on their mental health. Now, this is a very serious and complex topic. One certainly does not take this on lightly. So let me begin by asking you, why did you choose to pursue this study? What were you seeing that compelled you to take on this problem? Well, thank you, Joe, for both the introduction and for inviting me. And I I look forward to hopefully a lively chat with you. Um, That's a a terrific question to start off with. And I I can just anecdotally tell you that that another person who interviewed me uh, came at it from the opposite direction, saying, why on earth are you writing a book about boys and young men? So... um, 
so so there, there's a lot of controversy around boys and men in our society right now. And, and I would say that that's probably been true for some time. Um, my personal interest is through my uh, clinical practice. I'm a psychologist and Jungian analyst in San Francisco. And before that, I, I ran what was called a day treatment program, which is a, a kind of intensive therapy experience where the children go five days a week. And I did that for over 12 years. And most of our um, families that we worked with had a boy that was enrolled in the program. And most of them were, were boys of color. So primarily African-American, but also Asian-American and Latino. And um, so, so it was a very kind of interesting, immersive experience and some of the issues around urban trauma and poverty and equality. And um, I have to say it, it really kind of shaped my outlook both on in, in terms of things about social justice and then just clinically like, you know, trying to work with with young men and boys who who have had experiences of trauma. So um, so I would say that 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 has kind of been um, like a, just a part of my professional career. And then when I went into private practice, what gradually started to evolve is I was getting more and more referrals for boys and young men. Um, and so that, that just, I think, has been something of a natural outgrowth of the earlier experience. And you know, just really questions coming up about like, gosh, why are so many of these um, teenage boys getting into trouble? Why are they, you know, having substance abuse issues? Why are they breaking things? Um, so, so breaking things is 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 one way uh, that that teenage youth um, it's not limited to boys but often act out so so i would say that that's kind of the narrative and then we have a lot of numbers so i i don't know if you want me to share the numbers but um uh, some of them are in in my book and you know, like right now, I just look these up in preparation for our talking today. There are over 2 million fewer men in college now than women. 80% of public school teachers are women. So we have a dearth of male role models in public schools. 80% uh, of murder victims are men. Um, Two thirds of suicides are carried out by boys and men. And over 90% of our incarcerated population are men. So those are kind of sad. <laughs> I don't mean to start on, on, on a down note, but those, those are kind of, um, yeah, I, I guess, concerning statistics, right? So Yeah, and I'll just add my own small part, you know, because I, uh, I, I mostly deal with college freshmen, 18 to 19 year olds, essentially. And even just over the course of the past 10, 11 years, I've noticed quite a difference in the young men that I teach in terms of uh, more of a willingness to disconnect from things uh, very abruptly. And mm. what I find is, and, and I know we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little bit too, is 
I'm not even so sure that they understand that they understand how that's different than it used to be. And not only that, but that we need, we need to stay connected. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to talk a lot about reality and the digital spaces as well. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll hold back on that. But as a, as a follow-up, let me ask you just in your professional career, have you seen a gradual change in the, in the mental health of, of boys and young men? Or was this something that just kind of, we kind of woke up to it and went, oh, wait a second, this is really different now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a, again, like a very interesting kind of observation. I, I think there are some generational changes that, that primarily have to do with the, you know, the digital age, and then also the explosion of social media, which really took off after 2005. I think that's the date that often people kind of have in mind for that. And, and so, um, so those are, those are different generational factors. I I mean, uh, I started working in the late 1980s and, um, you know, back then I, I would say probably there, there, there was, uh, you know, a fair percentage of boys who still were struggling with mental health issues, um, I think the the social structures back then were a little bit different. And so, um, and I, I'm not meaning to be nostalgic or, or, or kind of wax like, oh, the good old days kind of thing, because those were bad old days in so many ways. But um uh, but for 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 example, there there was much more the treatment program that I mentioned to you that was around. That's no longer around. Day treatment is extremely difficult now to find. Inpatient inpatient hospitalization for psychiatric reasons for children and teenagers very difficult now to find and do. Even if you find a spot for any kind of real treatment. So I think, you know, the, there's been a big shift, I think, in terms of what's actually available. Um, and then probably some of the social changes having to do with with our, you know, all of us get, getting digitalized <laughs> to, to one extent or another. Um, and so, so I think it probably right now looks a little bit more serious just because of those things. I want to begin our dive into the book with a quotation actually toward the beginning because I found it to be quite fascinating. You write, at some point in life, every boy and man struggles in coming to terms with his inner world. Many break through to what it has to offer, emotional connection, uh, being in touch with pain and suffering, a capacity for empathy, and a willingness to risk love and endure all its pitfalls. First, I have to say, as someone who teaches in writing and writing, and you know, that's a beautiful line. I mean, that's a beautiful oh, no. sentence. It's wonderful, encapsulates a lot of the gravitas of the situation for real. Why is there this struggle to break through a man's inner world? And does it differ that dramatically from a woman's approach to processing her inner world? 
I think so. I, I, I mean, again, I'm going out on a bit of a limb here because, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously gender is a kind of, um, you know, it's a little bit of a hot wire just because I think nowadays we're coming more to see it as a social construct and see some of the ways in which we're we're shaped by by norms that that really aren't innate and don't have anything to do with with what a, a person might ultimately want to be. But that said, there there are these these kind of genderized belief systems that we all internalize through our families through school through our communities through sports um through social activities through peer groups and so so one thing that i think is difficult and continues to be difficult for uh, for boys is the idea of going inside being something feminine that there there is something about that that gets set up in their minds and reinforced unfortunately as as something that that potentially is feminizing and um and that that for you know uh, a lot of boys is is a dicey proposition it can feel like they're going out on a limb if they do that and they they open themselves up like that and you know i i do think things are better now than they were 20 years ago so again i'm 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 clear that we've made progress on this but but it still continues to surprise me. I, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I hear in my practice, uh, you know, things like, oh, why would I want to, you know, show those feelings? People will make fun of me. Um, and so so there, there's, you know, a way in which these things kind of persist. And, and again, like a lot of it is beyond our control because, you look at the the models, particularly through media, um, that boys and men get exposed to, in addition to their families and communities and all those other things I just mentioned, and a, a lot of them still have this traditional masculinity um, as a construct that's very powerful, and um, and and some of that is that you know there's a kind of shut down around feelings there's a stoicism um there's a kind of you know you're supposed to be action oriented um and you're supposed to be kind of rough and so the whole idea of of engaging in an internal process flies in the face of a lot of those things you made me think of um so someone like james baldwin who was often, he had to deal with a lot of people coming at him and, and questioning his manliness. But you know what? Here's the thing about Baldwin that's so amazing. If you watch his speeches, his lectures, his discussions, he actually does something that we would consider to be so traditionally masculine that it almost places him on a kind of um, epic hero level. And, and I don't actually mean that, uh, you know, as an exaggeration. What he does is he commands a room. Hmm. He stands up. And, and again, anybody who can watch his, especially his uh, debate 
um, with Buckley. That's all you need to see. Here's Baldwin standing in the middle of this room, surrounded by people. And there's not a single eye that is not on him. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about this, this uh, gender and, and we bring in this idea of language, how we discuss gender, I do wonder if, if maybe we discuss it almost even a little bit too much to the point that we, we diminish, um, we diminish the, how do I say this? We shouldn't necessarily be just thinking about it on a level of biology. If we want to talk about social construction of gender, which you mentioned a couple of times that it's a hot button issue, and I'll just say this, to my part, any individual, I don't care what gender, if we can help any individual, that should always be the source. That Mm -hmm. should always be what we're going after, period. We need to help individuals maximize the best versions of themselves that they can be. And after that, I think everything else, you know, the psychology part is really helpful to try to figure out, well, who is that? Who is the best version of me? You know, who am I? But I can't help but but just hear constantly that this these young men that you mentioned even in the book, and I'm going to bring up um, one of them in a minute. When When I kept reading about these struggles with, femininity. I just kept thinking about Baldwin and kept mm. thinking about how hyper-masculine even he is in those moments to command a room. Mm. And I'm, I'm wondering if, how do those kind of conversations happen with you? Because it is such a difficult thing for a young man, especially to break through that. How do you approach that kind of conversation about femininity within the masculine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with the the Baldwin Buckley debate, but now you've made me so curious. I'm going to watch it later today if I can if I can kind of fit it in in the early evening because yeah, that like one thought would be like that is a public. It, it's almost like a performative sphere. And so, so, you know, we can all be quite different there than we are with our friends or with people we're intimate with. And I I think it's often in these smaller, you know, groups where um, boys sometimes get feedback that, that, that is really subtle and, and, and that, you know, can be just, um, it could be something like, you know, like a, a mother's, like, you know, if her daughter cries, she'll sit there with the daughter and 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 oftenly often encourage her to say what it was, you know, she was upset about and and try and you know, talk her through it. And I'm not, again, trying to say fathers, fathers can do this as well. I just mother occurred to me. But you might then notice that the mother sits with the the boy, the son, and, you know, there'll be some encouragement, but maybe they'll be qualitatively these little, they're they're really nonverbal kind of differences. And, and, And boys will pick up on that and they'll feel like, well you know, maybe, maybe that's something that um, I shouldn't be that open about, or maybe I shouldn't, 
be talking so much about my feelings. And so, so I do a couple of different things. I think you can't go in through the front door. So, so that's, I, I think of a house, you know, and, um, and, and with a lot of, of, of boys and, and men, young men, you have to look for another way in and it might be a side door, you know, a little porch door, or a cellar door or something, but, um, but kind of going into the front door often just makes, makes them defensive. And, you know, it's something about like trying to find areas where they might be curious about themselves or other people being curious about them and why that would be. So to take a relational approach and to get them to think a little bit about, you know, that there is something about opening up that that makes us more interesting, that makes us more curious for other people to want to know. And, and so that's a process. It's not, you know, it's not as easy as what I'm just telling you. And, and sometimes it has to start with like identifying the feelings in a basic way, like, well, you know, yeah, that driver cut you off on the way here today. What went through your mind, you, you know, and how did you feel about that? And how long did that feeling stay with you? And like on a scale of one to 10, how strong was that feeling? It's it's those kind of conversations that that, you know, again, multiple times that start to help, I think, with this idea that if you talk about those things, that doesn't mean that people are going to think you're a girl or a woman. Um, it doesn't make you any less of a boy or a man. Um, it's a way to really fill yourself out and be fully yourself. You introduce us to a few different young men, men in the book who are struggling with various problems that we'll address as we move forward and progress in this conversation. But I want to start with a man named John. He's a 34-year-old straight male who became addicted to pornography. Part of what you wanted to do with John initially was recognize that he had this inner world of emotions that needed to be processed. But when you pressed him on it, he responded to you, it's not real. I think I've said this on the show before, so <laughs> my audience will have to forgive me if I say this again, but... Something that I've noticed just in my students recently in this Generation Z group is that they are sincerely worried about not being able to judge the difference between reality and the, the digital, what, what they just refuse. They don't want that to necessarily be reality. And I always press them because I find it fascinating that they're so concerned about losing touch with that reality. Mm. When you're dealing with patients mm. and trying to discuss the concept of the inner world, how often do you have to try and negotiate what the term reality means with these young men? And how do you approach such a conversation to maximize a healthier pathway forward for future discussions? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, to think about that a little bit. I, I mean, it's hopeful. I mean, I, I really like what you were telling telling me about, like the struggle that some of your students seem to be 
you know, articulating, that sounds hopeful in a way, right? Like that they don't want to get lost in the uh, unreality of our screens and, and, and kind of these cyberspace creations. Um, but it, it, it is a, a difficulty. And I, I think part of the, the reason we're all so tempted by, um, by using our devices, our computers and our smartphones and tablets is that it, it kind of, it, it kind of touches in with this part of us that's very childlike and loves magical thinking. You know, it's like Harry Potter with the wand. You, you press the button, you know, you click on something and the package arrives the next day. And I think some of these things now even have same day service. So there's something kind of magical about that. And, and I, I think that's where, where we all can get a little bit lost. And, and so I, I think with something like pornography, you know, it is a, a big problem. I, I mean, with a lot of teenage boys who are watching porn, that, that's their, that becomes their idea of sex, that it's very much based on what the male wants. I mean, there are all different kinds of pornography, but what I typically hear about is are, are these more, let's just say traditional, again, masculinity kind of uh, pornography scenarios where the man is in charge and the man gets what he wants and and it all happens relatively quickly and so they 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 get this very distorted idea about you know about about what happens in a relationship and so um so part of that is like again like having a conversation about like it's not you know real relationships it one, one great way to approach this i i watched your your interview with dr kylie it's like do you think life is a video game you know, and and they'll say no. And so then you start to talk about, well, what are some of the differences between how people relate in the video game and how they relate in the real world? So you look for these little, again, not the front door, you're looking for these other ways into their world that sort of create openings for thinking about how people relate, and what the differences are between real world relationships and virtual relationships. Um, I just finished a uh, chapter for a, a it's it's a book that a, a, a French uh, analyst is putting together. And, and so she asked if I would contribute a, a chapter on adolescence and technology. And and so I was I was writing about this dilemma of the ma magical thinking is, you know, that's where we get on this slippery slope of not recognizing. Yeah, you might want something, but we don't usually get what we want. I, I mean, that's a hard life lesson that keeps getting repeated for all of us. And and so um, so again, there's something about cyberspace that kind of warps the understanding of that. And and so, you know, in, in this chapter that I wrote for her, I was writing a lot about like I wrote about video gaming. I wrote about ghosting as a phenomenon, which, again, very 
you know, that's that's much more a thing of the last 15 years than it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and I wrote about like, you know, just some of the ways in which um, this this kind of texting that occurs on social media can really, really lead to catastrophic real world consequences for adolescents when they're not thinking, like when they share confidential private information and blast it out on a, a group chat or something. So so there are all these ways, I think, in which, yeah, the, there's good cause to be anxious about um, their experiences in these realms. And then how do they translate into the real world? Something you just mentioned that I kind of want to follow up on a little bit with your latest article you were just talking about, and specifically this uh, texting and this idea of getting information out. I, I can't remember who said this, but someone, someone with a with a with a big name in content creation was talking about how do you deal with uh, something negative that you put out that you no longer want that to be out there. And the traditional view, let's say you put out a tweet and, and it's a bad tweet. This person was saying the traditional view would be to delete the tweet. And that's kind of, I think, what most people do. But what this mm. creator was saying is, no, 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 that's the wrong way to do it. The right way to handle it is to actually just put out much more content, put out like 50, 100 more tweets and the reason why he said that is because he said with today, every bit of communication is so ethereal, so ephemeral that you bury it. And I thought to myself, mm. okay, wow, that is, that is a very different change in how we think about our communication, right? Because if you do it that way, you no longer have to say you're sorry about anything. You don't have to even address it. You just simply talk more, talk right past it. And I thought the two sad things. One, I thought that probably works in that area, I mean. That probably works. And two, I could see how that could lead to major relationship problems moving forward, right? Never having to say you're sorry, never having to address. We all make mistakes. Everybody does. But the idea we always hope is that we address it and not just for the other person. You have to address it for you so that you can feel like you can move forward in some way. And so you made me think of that when you were talking about the texting. Mm. Can, I, can I ask you to elaborate just a little bit more on the texting problem, the information problem as you saw it? Well, I where I've seen it is is where there's something racist in a in a text that gets blasted out, and then of course there's a lot of of you know I, I mean legitimate upset about those things. Um, so I've seen that, and then also sexual content that gets uh, blasted out that that was never meant for you know wider distribution. Um, uh, and, and that, of course, you know, results in public humiliation usually. And so so it's usually in the, these kind of, um, 
you, you know, where there's a thought you can, I was thinking about the idea of something being buried. And the problem with burying things is, is that they don't, they don't, they don't stop existing, right? <laughs> They're just underground. You, they can be dug up again. And so it's sort of a funny uh, idea, but um, but like, uh, yeah, where, where I've seen it in these situations is, is like, like something, you know, gets blasted out that the person has a thought, the teen has a thought like, oh, well, this is just between me and my buddy or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or whatever. And that, that like, it's private. So there is some sort of a thought like about privacy. Now that thought is not terribly well formed in most instances. And so, so then something can go wrong and then the person they've sent it to feels hurt or rejected and wants revenge. And then they, they send it out and then, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, really, really social shunning, uh, shaming, uh, humiliating kind of things can happen. And so it's, it's really, um, very problematic that way and and i've had this come up many times in my practice over the last particularly 10 years but i would say much more over the last five to seven um there's a lot of anxiety too that you know just to address something else you were were kind of alluding to there um about being canceled and, um, you know, I, I didn't actually quite understand this until about a year. This show this shows, you know, where I'm at with all this stuff. Um, I get educated because I'm a, a child and adolescent psychologist and analyst. So so thankfully for that. But um, a lot of boys have um, shared with me like that they're worried that something they might have posted or that they might have sent to a friend could lead to to the to that being blasted out so it's now a, now becomes a bit more of an anxiety so you think about the privacy is something that's kind of an unformed you know but is still there as an idea and then above that then maybe there's another idea like well why is privacy important well if people find out about this, what's gonna? What are the consequences going to be about? Be and I've now started to hear more about like boys and young men talking about. Yeah, I'm just really anxious. I'm going to get canceled, and that's a newer phenomenon in my practice that that I've only started to hear that I would say in the last year. Yeah, and I wonder if that is only going to continue to to grow. Um, and I have to imagine that eventually it's going to extend itself to an anxiety with with no basis at all, meaning that there were no even tweets or or whatever it is that they're using, that they simply just feel as though their thoughts are going to get them canceled. Yeah, well, the, the whole barrier, I'm just fascinated by what you were telling me about the, the recommendation to just double down on it and bury it you, you know um someone recently told me that they were applying for uh like internships and um and that they were a bit concerned um because of some of their social media posts and i i i said what like what would be the concern and 
they apparently believe that, and and I I don't know if the, how true this is or not, but that a lot of employers now like will look through an applicant's social media post to see if there are some of these incriminating things. So so it's true, it might be buried. I suppose it depends on the energy of the person digging what they find, right? I, uh, I actually have a story about that. <laughs> when I was going for my uh, certification, my New York teacher certification back in 2005, I think it was four or five, I remember... Uh, uh, one of my classmates told this to us. She said that she went for an interview, a job interview, and they actually did bring up a picture from her social media account back then. And it was a picture of her at like a party situation. Uh-huh. And it seemed like, you know, maybe she was having a bit too much fun or whatever it was. But I, I, I bring up that story to my students when it comes up, because mm. I want them to know there is something to this idea of trying to recognize it as early as possible that at a certain point you're building up an identity as well online now. Mm-hmm. The two things, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, maybe back then it made more sense to say you're building two identities, right? There's your professional identity and your you know normal identity, but now I'm not sure that there's even a difference anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that 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 seems to be where we're at now. I I, I mean, um, y- y- you know, like like something can come back to haunt you or bite you, you know. And um, I I'm I, I this one quote. This is uh from somebody in my my practice a few years ago, and I think I might even use it in the book. He he. So he was involved in, um, you know, kind of like a lot of uh, these chat boards, I guess, you know, where people post really object. But he he did. He wasn't posting. He just liked to read the material. And um, uh, he he was sort of like somebody who was very aware of like the vulnerabilities of these posts and like that people might be able to track you and. He said to me, um, online, nothing is private. And I, I thought that was such a telling, you know, remark. And and uh, I can remember asking him, I said, well, where, where do you think we're headed as we, we spend more and more of our lives seem to be migrating into this, this digital world, this cyberspace? And he said, we won't have any privacy anymore. And and so I, I did ask him, I said, well, how do you imagine that would be? What kind of a world would that be? And he said it would be a very scary world. So, so I think that again, there's some awareness of like the risk, but, um, but like what you're you're describing with what you do with your students, like imagine that you're establishing like an identity that people could know. That's again where these things clash: the unreal and the real. Right. Where somebody suddenly could come up and say to you during a, uh, an interview, we're curious about this post from 2012 in which you say blah, blah, blah. That could be potentially, <laughs> you know, like like you talk about something coming at you from left field. Right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely. 
it's not something that we have a definitive answer yet even, even though social media has technically been around for quite a while. We don't have a straight answer for that, really how to deal with that, I think, yet. And we may, we might never really have a great way to deal with it. Just we find our personal balance, essentially. Let me, let me move this a little bit to, mm-hmm. to the topic of encouragement. So I learned at a young age from seeing my own parents, they kind of instilled within me and my two sisters, if there's an easy good that you can do in front of you that won't harm you in any way, just do it. And the reason why was to try to always, if you can, provide some kind of encouragement. Mm. As I've gotten older, Mm. I've found that to me, it's doubly important for young men because I found that, and you can tell me, you can tell me if I'm wrong here. I found that if you don't provide young men, say between 12 and 25, when you hit that biological maturity there, if you don't provide them with concrete examples of goodness in the world, I think it's easy for them to move toward a space of, or a mindset of, of cynicism in some ways. And so that extends it to my students if they invite me to something and I can go, whether my male or female students, that doesn't matter. I just go. What I thought was interesting in your book, you Mm. talk about the importance of encouragement as well, but you add something to it that I'm going to ask you to expand upon. You talk about why it's important when young men are dealing with puberty, especially to provide both encouragement and simple information. Mm -hmm. Can you expand upon this idea of the need for encouragement and simple information in young men at the time of puberty? Why are these concepts so important at that time period? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, I, I really, I really love the story about your, your family. I mean, that's, you know, the idea of a mitzvah, a good deed and, and, and that, you know, like, yeah, sometimes these are very simple to do and 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 it it is a way to like not only accumulate goodness but to sow goodness, to put goodness out in the world and and so that that's really a lovely kind of example. Um so puberty is is like we all have these kind of threshold experiences in life like and and puberty is one of the earlier ones uh, just to give you another example losing your first tooth that that that's that's often a child's like opening to like that the world is impermanent that that things right like oh my gosh what happened to that tooth and and puberty is another one of those things like it's something about childhood does start to end and and these threshold experiences are often points in time where where if we're lucky enough like if we're supported by our environment our parents you know, and everybody around us, we can start to realize, like, I'm never going to be the same. I I was something up to now. And now I'm not going to be that thing. I'm going to be something different. And and so it's a very powerful kind of moment. I, I mean, it really is gripping if you think about it. And 
so for puberty for boys, I, I think, and it's true for girls too, like information really helps a lot. And often parents can be embarrassed. Um, they can, you know, think, well, that, that'll happen in school. Um, or if they provide information, they'll often give a book and they'll say, why don't you read, read this book? And if you have any questions, let me know kind of thing. We, you know, that's outsourcing. That's outsourcing within the family. You really have to have the, the conversation about, yeah, you're going to start sweating and you might smell and like your friends might notice that. And like, let's think about like what there are things you can do about that. So, so, so there's these, all these series of, 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 um, you know, conversations. I think one of the more startling things that I, when I, I, I wrote the, the book, I, I was reminded of, I had some prior medical training. And so somewheres it was in the cobwebs of my mind, but when a boy goes into puberty, the testosterone level increases 30 fold. I mean, that is nuts. I mean, you talk about roid rage, right? I, I, I mean, that, that, that's a lot. And so no wonder, like, we're clumsy, we're boisterous, we, you know, fall downstairs or trip. I mean, all these things. Um, and so just talking with boys about, like, their bodies changing um, can be really, really helpful and useful. The encouragement piece comes, comes into, like, you're growing, right? You're going to be growing into being a young man. And there's a whole lot of exciting stuff that can happen around that. And so getting that message can give a sense of confidence. It is encouragement, but what you want is for that to be internalized. But um, encouragement is is really like a building block and and like how you think about yourself and like get a sense of comfort in your body. And then if you have that, then maybe that internal world also isn't going to be as frightening to you. And it's not a bad idea either to to bring in the science itself. We, we tend to, to run away a bit from the science and, and maybe, or maybe rely on it too much, but that balance between the, the, the chemical and the psychological is actually really important, right? Because in some sense, your testosterone level going up 30 fold, that's going to in, encode and push you toward a, a different narrative of yourself. And so having, I think, a strong conversation about, listen, part of this might change a little bit of how you how you interact with others and also how you think of yourself. So what we want to do is, is stay in communication with each other and just every so often, let me know. How are you feeling today? Not in a general sense, but in a specific sense. Do you feel like you're, like you're feeling a little bit different? Because my worry is always that because we've downplayed the importance of, of narratives, of reading in some sense so much, that I often find too that young people today don't have the ability to narrate who they want to be. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Not in, in so much even a, an out there philosophical sense, but in a very down to earth, who are you? Can you narrate that well. And so I, I find it difficult to get even my students when I sit down with them mm -hmm. and they come to me with a problem to actually be able to 
vocalize, verbalize it in some meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Narratives are 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 so helpful, right? Because they're they're about a process. They're about something that starts, has a beginning, middle, and end. You know that that there's a whole story to flush out in there, and that's true for puberty too. I I, I mean, we we all start to um, males start to grow. Um, it was something when their adrenal glands start to, to grow and kick out more of those, those steroids. And, and that starts with some of the secondary sexual characteristics, but sexual maturity doesn't come usually for a year or two afterward. So the whole thing about puberty is like, yeah, it's not just doing a download about information. It's it's about like you're going through a process of change and that's going to take some time and you don't have your grown up body yet. You're going to keep growing and like, like something about like the, the encouragement also being about looking at what's on the horizon and being able to forecast that that's an exciting thing that that, you know, that there are surprises along the way, but that um, it'll, it'll also be exciting. So, um, so that's a, that's a kind of biological narrative that we all to one extent or another share. And, and then, you know, being able to verbalize that and talk about that, then of course creates the psychological narrative. I want to bring in another individual from your book here as well, Brad. Brad spends a lot of time playing games online, games like League of Legends, he struggles with developing healthy relationships with others due to a strong sense of being better or feeling better than others. I think you call it a sense of omnipotence. Right. However, something quite positive actually happens when he starts to communicate with a pen pal from South America. Can you take us through a little bit of the crux of Brad's struggles? Why was he struggling with this so much? And then how did he work toward developing this healthier relationship with this pen pal? Yeah, I think that that that's an interesting um, you know story in the book because so so this goes back to the 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 problem with um, so he played the League of Legends, I'm sure, as you you know, is what they call one of these multiplayer battle arena games, point and shoot. And and so it's not not primarily a role playing game. It's not primarily about a story. Um, and so um, so one of the, the the problems I think that he got into and certainly other boys in my practice have gotten into is when they're just they become compelled to play this game. And this is where the magical thinking can kind of tip into oh, I want to be the best, the most powerful. Uh, I want to have the highest kill ratio or, you know, be on the leaderboard kind of thing. And that can really inflate a person's psyche. And that that we call them uh, feelings of omnipotence. And so um, so as a result of this, he, 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 you know, he really struggled a lot with real world relationships because, again, like what happens online 
um, in these games is really, really quite different. I, I'm, I'm curious if you have a take on that, but really, really quite different from real world relationships. And so, so a lot of it was trying to help him see, you know, something about where his frustrations were with people that he was playing with and how he had this very dismissive, condescending attitude. And I had to bring that into the relationship with me. And so, so there was something about our talking about like his being dismissive toward me, his being condescending toward me, really the omnipotence in the room. And, and that, that eventually led to him expressing some concern about how I might um, view him and what I might think about him. And through that conversation, I think something opened up for him about how lonely he was and how isolated he had felt and alienated he was, that he didn't have any uh, friends at his school and, and that he felt particularly um, socially isolated. And so long story short, subsequent to these conversations, he then began to explore the idea of seeing if there were there were forms, not through video games, but social forms online where he might find a friend. And so so he was able to do that. And, and again, that's a positive thing about cyberspace, right? Like this friend was in a different continent. And, um, you know, they, they initially, I think, started out chatting and then they set up a Skype call. I mean, it was actually kind of sweet in a way. And then um, and then they just started Skyping. And, and <laughs> that led to, at one point, a movie night where they I don't can't remember how they did this exactly, but they had the same movie that they were watching while Skyping. And and so, you, you know, there was an evolution, but it really had to do with kind of uh, being able to pinprick the inflation a little bit um, or more than a little bit, I'll say, and get get him to see like that there was a problem with it in the real world. It's interesting. You asked me about building the relationships online and I think this actually is going to connect with with my my next question as well. Uh, I'll say this: I have seen uh, quite a few people build really meaningful relationships through gaming, but to me, the key is that they decide together to take it beyond the game. Hmm. And I think that's really important because, and this again, this will connect with my next question. Maybe I'll just go into the question. Because then it'll it'll connect this idea of, of moving beyond an avatar of yourself, essentially. So let me go ahead and bring someone else in. You you bring in clinical psychologist Alessandra Lemma into the conversation to talk about gaming and alienation from the body. And I want to quote her. I want to quote her here. Um, At a minimum, compulsive use of video games with avatars for role-playing, questing, and violent combat raises a question about the consequences for a still-maturing ego, which Freud noted long ago is first and foremost a bodily ego. So I know we're we're moving a little bit toward the end of the, the conversation here, but can I ask you first to talk about 
what is Freud's bodily ego? And maybe to talk a little bit about this, this problem with the avatar in gaming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, so, so again, you, you, I so appreciate how carefully you, you, you're read the book and it's coming across in these, these very attentive questions. So I'm just appreciating you for, for that. Um, to you know we we could talk a whole hour about just that that idea but to to kind of you know summarize it a bit like we all start out i i mean in some ways is these infants who are who have to learn how to be in a body and we do that through our early primary caretaking experiences with our parents. And so, so Freud's idea really was is that that's kind of something about how we begin, we start. Um, and, and some of that then has to do with how an ego develops, that, that there's a way that that ego develops through those um, really primary sensory experiences. I think what Lemma is commenting on is when we lose connection with our body, we're at risk, you know? And so she, in a way, is saying that there's something about the avatars that if you have an ego that's vulnerable, you're putting them at risk for further disembodiment. And in general, we know, I mean, there's so much psychological research to support this, but we know that when people are feeling disembodied, they're prone to dissociate and, and feel unreal and that that is unhealthy psychologically. That's not a good thing, uh, particularly if, if that's an, a cumulative experience for their mental health. So this disembodiment, I think that's what she's speaking to with the avatars is that that um, where where's the return to being in the body and feeling the body? And um, you know, I uh, in that chapter, I told you that I was just uh, finishing for the the French group. Um, I, I write a little bit about a boy, and I I think it might be in the book too, um, a similar kind of scenario where. Uh, he would be online for, you know, playing the video game for six, seven hours. And when he would get off, he would be in such a state of overstimulation and agitation that he would begin throwing things in the house. And so, so that, that like, you know, there are a lot of steps in between, but basically I think part of what goes on in those kind of situations is the, the person becomes disembodied and how do they get back into the body when they've absorbed so much stimulation through cyberspace? It's, it's not an easy bridge to cross unless you have some awareness you know, while you while you've been playing and awareness that, well, how many how long has it been now? And like, maybe I should stop. Maybe I need a break and maybe I should go for a walk. You know, those kind of basic things. And so you can you can look at the agitation afterwards as really being almost like he's trying to get back into his body, like to be born into it again. Um, because he's been so disconnected. And so I think that's the risk that she's she's speaking to that you you mentioned in that quote. 
Um, clearly, if a person is having fun, they're enjoying the avatar, they're, they're, they've got some awareness like, yeah, this is a game and I'm doing it for an hour or maybe 90 minutes. That's different, you know, the, the, there's because there's a capacity for reflection there. So the magical thinking hasn't gained the upper hand. Robert, you've been very generous with your time. I always like to try to end these serious conversations on a positive note, however, for hope for people. What would you tell someone who is either struggling with this alienation or parents or guardians who have children who are struggling with this alienation? What would you tell them in terms of um, uh, ideas to get them moving toward a more positive direction? Um. Well, you know, depending on the seriousness, right, it could be if the alienation has reached a serious level that then they need mental health intervention and they can contact then their local mental health associations. I mean, most counties have various groupings that are professionally affiliated. So like a local uh, psychology association or social work or psychiatry association, th those folks keep referral lists so they can help connect people with, with local providers. Um, talking, talking is so important and having the hard, you know, it, it, it's important and it can be hard, but that doesn't take away from like, okay, we can have a noisy conversation with one another. And that helps all of us to feel so much less alienated, just getting the noise out from inside our heads. Um, the other thing that I, I want to mention, I was reading the end of my book before you, we, we went on to the call and, and I, I sort of have an appeal at the end for something about like being in nature and thinking about like that there's a spiritual side to us all too. And, and just whatever that is, it's not prescriptive for any of us, but being open to the idea that, that we're soulful beings and that that needs expression and that can find expression through art, through music, through nature, um, through so many avenues that that's, that's a really important thing to support and encourage in our boys and young men. I think that's a perfect way to end this. Robert, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your professional information. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I so enjoyed uh, the conversation we've been having. In my introduction, I asked the question, is there a boy slash man crisis? I think so. Is it something that we can't overcome? No. I fully believe we can emerge out of the crisis with a renewed spirit of hope, direction, and meaningful engagement with the world. We often find ourselves today fighting over whether or not women need more help than men or men need more help than women. But this is the wrong question to follow and will only produce more confusion and resentment. It's in the best interest of us as a species to help everyone reach their productive potential in society. The more people we have functioning well in society, the better we will all be. So if there is a particular crisis in a particular group of people, that should be the concern of us all. If you enjoyed the conversation, support our growing community of people who crave civil, meaningful discourse by subscribing, hitting the like button, and leaving a thoughtful, genuine comment for me and my guest. Until next time, 
Try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground. And have a great day. <laughs>